And recording. Yep. Um, so actually, point number one on this outline I covered last week, uh, which is the idea about um, scripture. And because it is recorded, you can go back. I'll try to post it up uh, in the next, uh, like I said, this afternoon. I hope to get it up there. Um, but yeah, so last week we pretty much talked about the Bible uh, and why we trust the Bible. Uh, and one of the points I made uh, along that, which we sort of finished up with this last point here, is that the Bible is primarily uh, news. It's not primarily um, just philosophical concepts. And, and a lot of religions, really, a lot of different religions, like such as Buddhism, even when they have writings, uh, it's really sort of, you could say, like adages, like, you know, and, and so you could say, well, the book of Proverbs is like that in the Bible. It's not as though there's none of that in the Bible. But it is fundamentally really about a record of God's intervention uh, on our behalf uh, into the world. And that actually goes all the way back to week one when we talked about how God is outside the universe. He can intervene. He's not constrained by it. And he can intervene and do things. So um, the theme for today is what is the gospel? And actually our church talks about being a gospel-centered church. And um, it's always a little bit risky in saying what is the gospel, because in one sense, the entire Bible is the gospel. The whole, the whole Bible is news about what God has done. And, you know, whenever you make an outline uh, or reduce it down to say, I'm going to talk about the gospel, you could be misinterpreted as saying, well, the rest of the Bible isn't important, uh, which is not the case. But I think when we talk about the gospel, we're saying that it is useful to summarize kind of the main points of scripture to uh, really for a handle, especially if somebody asks us about it. So I'm going to put up uh, on the board here four points. Uh, and a lot of this is actually in the very first chapters of Genesis. Uh, you don't have to go to the New Testament for this. Um, so the first one I call the importance of humans. And um, you see this very clearly in the first few chapters of Genesis where it talks about uh, Adam and Eve being made in the image of God. And it's very clear from the context that they really represent the whole human race. Uh, and uh, that what they do really matters. Uh, I'm going to talk in a few weeks, maybe next week, about heaven and hell. And some people get really bent out of shape about the existence of hell. Uh, but one of the things uh, that it talks about is the incredible significance of what we do. Uh, that people are extremely important to God, and therefore what they do can be judged. Uh, and I've you know, sometimes said, like, if you think about a worm, you don't sit down with a worm and say, well, you have been a morally bad worm, and so I'm going to punish you. Yeah, it's just a worm, right? And if it's a bug in your house, you just flick it. Right? You, don't, you don't have a deep investment in the importance of any specific bug and whether you're going to judge it or not, right? But people are different, right? And the Bible really emphasizes that people are fundamentally different in that way and that God cares about what we do uh, deeply. Uh, and it's because of what the, uh, uh, the chapters in Genesis call the image of God um, uh, that is in us. And so even though there's much that is like us in the animals, uh, we're fundamentally different from all of the animals and all of the animal kingdom. Uh, and so there's another word, so I'll put down here, image of God. And I'll also put down dominion. Um, God doesn't just say he created them in his image. He also says, rule over the animals and over the natural world. Uh, and you shall have dominion over it. And so we have a commission to do something to actually, uh, and I would say, take the Garden of Eden and sort of bring the whole world under, you know, you could say the Garden of Eden is this small place in the Middle East where they are uh, located first, but they have the whole world before them. Uh, and they're really given a commission to go out uh, and to have dominion. And the picture of that is not just spoiling creation, like just destroying it, but actually like a gardener who's been given a job to take a good care of the garden. Uh, and so even though they're in charge of the, of the world, uh, people are not supposed to destroy it, but they're supposed to actually caretake it for God to make it a better place. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, you see that in the mandate uh, the that they have, and Jesus refers to that as stewardship, right? So sometimes it's another word I can put up here, stewardship, and we're like stewards who have been given something by God to take care of and to make it better. 
But it does mean that sometimes we can kill animals or we can uproot weeds or things like that, that we have that degree of control uh, over the uh, natural world. Uh, but it's supposed to be for the improvement of all of these things. Uh, there's also a verse in Ecclesiastes that I really like that fits with this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says, I'm going to paraphrase that um, humans are in an awkward and uncomfortable situation because God has put eternity into our hearts and yet in such a way that we can't figure out what he's doing when we get into the end. Um, so you can summarize this and say that we have eternity uh, or eternal spirits. Um, I'll say eternal Um, and you see this in the Genesis chapters, that there was a tree of life. That if they ate of the tree of life, they would live forever. And so uh, when they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they no longer have access to the tree of life. And that is really saying, you know, that you're going to die because you don't have access to this. But they, this is different from the animals. The animals, as far as we know from the passage, were not streaming into the Garden of Eden to eat of the tree of life. The animals uh, would have died naturally. But people are different in that they have an eternal spirit. And the Ecclesiastes passage is really interesting because it, it talks about how we can't escape this eternal side of ourselves, that we have the vision to look higher than just, you know, I need food and I need warmth and shelter, uh, that everybody sort of can't escape. And even, you know, see, like I've got the grandkids with us this week, like, you know, they ask why questions all the time. Why is this? Why is that? Right? You know, so at a very early age, we're already thinking about deeper things than just, you know, give me food and give me, uh, give me warmth. Uh, and so uh, the upside of that is that God takes us very, very seriously, and he takes what we do very, very seriously, and that we have a moral nature uh, like God. Um, the downside is going to be my second point then, uh, which I'll just call the bad news. Okay, so we talked last week about how the gospel means the good news. Essentially, the good news is a response to the bad news. So the second point of sort of any standard presentation of the, quote, gospel is the bad news, which is that we have sinned, uh, right? All of us have sinned. Uh, and basically, uh, how do I put it here? Uh, we stand under God's curse, right? Um, And you see this also in Genesis, uh, the early chapters, um, that when they sin, they're kicked out of the garden. Uh, and um, things are going to be a lot harder for them. So he doesn't change everything, but the relationship between them and God is broken. They're sent out of his presence. They now are going to die. Uh, and you see, actually, even in the dialogue that they have with God, the kind of broken relationship. Because God says, what have you done? And essentially, the... Um, there's blame shifting going on where man says, well, it's the woman's fault. And the woman says, well, the devil made you do it. Uh, and everybody's blame shifting. And there's no longer sort of an honesty in their relationship anymore. Um, and the Bible says, again, that we are all in the same boat, uh, that we all um, are like Adam and Eve uh, in that way. Uh, and again, that's significant because of point number one, that we're not just worms for God to just annihilate. Uh, but that actually our moral uh, character matters to him, and they will actually uh, be responsible to give account for everything that we've done. And uh, you see that even later in the story of Noah, where he says you will give an accounting for everything, uh, every life that you have been uh, interacting with, including all of the animals that you've interacted with. Uh, let me pause here uh, and just, um, well, let me just make one last point. Uh, and this is a more um, controversial point, I guess you would say. Um, within what we call reformational Christianity, uh, we would say that the bad news is such that we need a savior from outside, that we can't save, save ourselves. And this is really, within Christianity, uh, a big dividing issue, say, between the Catholic and the Orthodox churches and traditional Reformed Protestantism. And even some versions of Protestantism would say, well, if you just do enough religious good works, 
then you'll get back to being in a good relationship with God. And that's all you need to do. Um, and um, so there's a real emphasis on ritual and a real emphasis on uh, doing certain good works and so on. And uh, the premise of that is that a problem is not really that big. And if we just sort of do some religious good deeds, that will solve the problem. Uh, and scripture, uh, would, uh, I would say, is pretty clear that our problem is much, much deeper, and that our hearts are far from God, uh, and that we really need God to take the first step. And so a lot of what I've been emphasizing in the last couple of weeks is that both in his communication to us and in his salvation, he is the initiator. That he, we wouldn't know anything about him if he didn't tell us, and we wouldn't be able to save ourselves if he didn't take the first step to reach toward us. Uh, and so God's initiative is a really crucial part. So let me pause here for comments and questions at this point. Yeah, I mean, I know a number of people who will sit down with someone. If, if somebody is asking about Christianity, they'll just use the first three chapters of Genesis, and you can pretty much like almost give all you need to know in proto form uh, in Genesis uh, there. Other comments or questions? I mean, here's the other thing I would say: these first two points. In some sense, I would say, should not be a hard sell to anybody, even if they don't believe the Bible. Like, in some sense, these are empirically verified. Okay? The first one, that people just can't escape being religious and thinking deep thoughts. You know, that we can't live like animals. You know, and, I mean, people sometimes do, and it's miserable, uh, but, but there's something deep in us that has what's sometimes called a God-shaped vacuum that we just can't not be religious. We can't not think there has to be something more. Uh, and the other is that people are also deeply sinful. And you know, many poets, many novelists you know, have written about the contradiction between these two first points that both are abundantly clear to us, right? That people have a dignity, they have a certain depth to them, and also how evil they can be to each other. Uh, and there's been movements from time to time in philosophy of people trying to say that people are basically good and there's not fundamentally a, a problem. But, you know, they, they, they you know, run up against reality, right? That even in societies that you would say seem mostly good, you just go a little bit below the surface, you know, to what is going on in secret or behind closed doors or what people are doing to stab each other in the back. Uh, and there's, a, there's an evil, you don't have to go far below the surface to see uh, real evil in society. And I think one of the things that maybe is going on in our present society with all the sort of increased judgmentalism is that we sort of swung from a philosophy of wanting to believe like everybody's basically good to not being able to believe that and seeing like, no, there was real evil in society to like swing to the other side where like everybody hates everybody because it's like, no, I really see the evil that's in people, you know, and, and our society is dealing with evil as a reality. So both of these are empirically valid, you know, and actually I'll just give one quote. I think it was Chesterton who said of all of the doctrines of Christianity, uh, there's only one which is absolutely empirically verifiable, which is the depravity of mankind, <laughs> right? You know, because that's the one that slaps you in the face or how many genocides and holocausts and things like that have we had even just in the last hundred years. Yeah, go ahead, Neil. I don't know, um, trying to find the best way to put this, but like in present times, I think especially, I really get a strong sense that that people are being compelled to accept that what we, we would call sin or degradation as being what we are. Yeah, so that's one strategy, just to say, embrace it, and, and, and don't call it sin anymore, just say it's just natural sin. You are, you know, and whatever, another letter from the Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think we deeply in our hearts want to believe that we're not good, because we were, I mean, sorry, we want to believe in our hearts that we are good, because there's something terribly wrong with everybody being bad. And so, like, it's, it's hard 
to, to say this because it makes it sound like you're denying point number one, right? So if I say everybody is sinful, that could be taken as saying everybody should just be sort of ignored and disdained and forgotten about. But that's not, I mean, point number one says, no, people are actually extremely important uh, and people are actually extremely have a dignity and a value to them. And that's why point number two with the evil is so bad, right? If there were just worms and number one weren't true, then number two would not be an issue. It'd just be like they're insignificant. Who cares about their evil, right? But it's because we believe in point one that point two is so bad, right? Um, and so I can relate to the theologies and the philosophies that want to say everybody is good because it ought to be that way. Right? You deeply, in your heart, want it to be the case that everybody is basically good. Uh, but you just, reality slaps you in the face. It just isn't the case, and especially if you examine even your own heart and say, what am I capable of doing? Uh, and uh, realize that the, you know, the, the, the veneer of civilization is only so thin and that we have, all have a lot of evil lurking, potentially or in reality, in our, in our hearts. Um, so... It's funny because a lot of great literature really is about these two first points, right? Just to you know, think about Tolstoy. I mean, all the great novels are wrestling with both the beauty and the dignity of humankind, you know, and just how there's this contradiction of somebody who could, you know, do these things. And there was a movie that came out in the 90s called Crash, uh, and it's amazing that it actually got made in Hollywood because it's one of the um, it's a it's a it's a brutal movie to watch. It's rough to watch, but it is one of the best movies for striking at how the same people can be doing something beautiful and also unexcusably evil. Like it's it's the same person in a lot of it's, and so you, it follows around a bunch of different stories of different characters, and you see them in one context. You're like, oh, they're a victim, and then you see the same person very believably in another context oppressing somebody else, and then you see the oppressors at the beginning of the movie doing something really beautiful later on. And it's like that's the contradiction of who we are, you know, is that it's both. You know, you can't escape both the dignity and the depravity uh, of humans. Yes. Yes, this is, you're right, that's a huge problem for our society is that we want to worship heroes and yet we want in our hearts to be able to say they've done nothing really wrong. And so then we see, no, they have done some terrible things. Our natural reaction is then they can't be a hero at all and to expunge them. Uh, and that's what we're wrestling with is that we can't find any heroes that are pure as the driven snow other than Jesus Christ, right? Because you look hard enough on any of these characters, uh, any of these historical figures, there's some deeply bad things about them. Almost every one that you could hold up, but even the reformers, you know. To replace those historic evidence, you know. Yeah. They want to erect statues themselves. Yeah, and this is where I think uh, we're in a dangerous place in society in that you, it's like the Pharisees in that in condemning others, we want to basically say, I am sinless. You know, and I don't do anything seriously wrong. I can only condemn others. And if any one flaw condemns you, then I have to have done no flaws at all. And uh, and and then you, you create hypocrisy out of that. right? When you make the sharp cutoff that all sinners must be expunged, then you end up with people who proclaim themselves to be perfectly virtuous, and that becomes a, a new hypocritical class. So you just replace the old Christian hypocrites with the new hypocrites who are you know of a different thing, but they're acting the same way in some ways. Um, okay, so the next point, uh, and I'm just going to put, oops, um, I'm just going to put atonement as a uh, general word for this. Um, the Bible, from beginning to end, talks about atonement as a crucial concept that our sins cannot just be forgotten about or ignored by God, but that there has to be atonement, and. Um, it's interesting because um, this is where there's a key difference uh, with Muslims. You know, Muslims would agree, actually, with the first two points, except they wouldn't really agree with the badness of people being all so bad. They would say we're mostly good. I think they would almost say, like, we're neutral. 
but some people veer into evil. But they really reject the idea of atonement. Um, even though in their sort of uh, deep cultures, a lot of times they will actually kill to expunge sin, like in, a, in an honor killing. The whole idea is this family member has done an inexcusable sin. They must die to expunge the sin. So they actually have a concept of atonement, uh, uh, even even so. But I don't know that, that they would derive that from from the Quran specifically. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things, so one of the things they will say the, the Muslims actually say that Muhammad was a prophet in the line of all the Jewish prophets, and that he his book should be just added to the Bible. But then you say, wait a minute, you know, the Bible has all these things that contradict Islam, and they'll say, oh well, Christians change the Bible later on. Uh, but here's the thing, like. If you try to remove the doctrine of atonement from Scripture, you've got nothing left. You know, I mean, there's so much atonement in there that it actually becomes boring to people. Like you're just doing chapter after chapter of atonement. You know, of then the blood shall be sprinkled here, and then you shall kill this, and then you shall bring out the bread, and you know, it's just atonement, atonement, atonement. You're just like turning the pages of all the atonement. And to imagine that like whole books and chapters, it wasn't just like a couple places where atonement appears. It's just like so through, you know, that for the Muslim view to say that the scriptures were written or were changed would be like, okay, so you're saying that basically like entire books like Leviticus were just invented wholesale, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's just all through. And the prophets, of course, talking about uh, the atonement, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all through. Um, and I want to make, uh, stress one point uh, about uh, the idea of atonement. It's not about paying off God. So there's a number of idolatrous religions, uh, or even some versions of Christianity, in which people think that the idea is that um, basically you know you did something uh, to hurt God, and so you've got to pay him off by providing something impressive to him. And actually, also from the first chapters of Genesis, we see that this doesn't work this way, uh, because in chapter four of Genesis. Um, they bring sacrifices to God, Cain and Abel do, uh, and um, Cain brings grain. And God says that's not an acceptable sacrifice, and that makes Cain really mad. Uh, and um, yet, you might say, in terms of economic value, the grain that he brought was as valuable as the lamb that uh, Abel brought. So why was the one accepted not there? It's because God wasn't interested in the payment. There was something else going on with this idea of sacrifice. And it's not simply, you know, we're paying off God. And in numerous places in the Bible, God says, I have the cattle on a thousand hills. What do I need with your sacrifice? Like, you're not, you can't just pay me off. So then you can say, what is going on with the Toma? It's essentially the concept of justice. And also in Genesis 4, when Cain kills Abel, God says the ground itself cries out uh, for justice. Uh, and so there's really just this idea that um, justice demands that if you have sinned, there must be a blood sacrifice uh, to atone for that sin. Um, and so blood is a crucial part of sacrifice. It's not just uh, an option. And what we see in the New Testament is that um, the blood of animals really stands for the blood of Christ that uh, all of the animal sacrifices that happen in the Old Testament, um, at one level you could say, met that uh, need that's deep in our hearts for atonement, that you know, we have the sense that the blood of the ground cries out. Um, but in another sense, they were all just pointing to Christ. They did not literally atone for sins. They rather pointed to uh, the atonement that Christ would bring. Um, and... Um, let me just move on then to talk about the second of Christ. So point number four uh, is then that Christ is our atonement. Um, and there's actually quite a bit uh, to talk about on this level. So I'm going to go back to uh, discussions with Muslims that I had. Uh, one fellow said, well, how is it fair... You know, suppose you're in a courtroom, or, or suppose you even have um, your parent, and you have two kids, and, you know, Sammy has been sassing you, 
And you say, well, Sammy, uh, I'm going to punish Joe instead. You know, and the Muslim says, well, that's not fair. You know, how can you punish one person for somebody else's sins? Even if they're willing, you know, they say, okay, I'll take the punishment. Like, how is that actually justice? Um, and I think the crucial thing which they're missing in that is the idea of union with Christ. Um, and actually, that was my point five. So I guess I'll put all these up here, uh, and then we'll come back. Okay. Um, go ahead. Question. Well, they would say they do. They rarely actually study the Old Testament, but they would say that he's in line with the Old Testament. I was wondering what Malcolm would say about the Exodus and about Passover. Yeah, the Passover lamb and so on. They would say all of that was invented by Christians in the late Middle Ages. I kid you not. The whole core of the Jewish religion. Yeah, they would say it was invented in the late Middle Ages. Yeah, because Muhammad actually says, and he's writing in six and seven hundreds. Right. That the Bible is good, okay, yeah. uh, and so they would say the Bible to Muhammad was still okay, and then it got distorted hundreds of years later. So I mean, it's a really extreme position of history to say that you know. And the thing is, of course, we have all these copies of the Bible from the year three to four hundred. So you know, we actually have. No, all of a sudden, Judaism is a newer religion than Islam. That's what they're saying. Yeah, they're saying that everybody, the original religion was actually Islam, and that modern Christianity, Judaism, came after them and distorted everything. Um, so it's a pretty extreme view of history, actually. But they get pressed into that because when they actually read the Bible, they realize the contradictions are deep, not just shallow. Uh, but if you were to talk to the average Muslim on the street, they would expect that the Bible reads just like the Quran. Like, they think, if they've never read it, they think that it's just like more of the same. And so one of the best things you can do evangelistically is just get people to read the Bible and see what it actually says, uh, and let it speak for itself uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but I mean, just address that point um, about how can Christ be our atonement. Uh, and this fundamentally comes from this idea of union with Christ. Um, that, um, oh, actually, I see in my outline, I didn't have to put the point up here because I have it as a sub-point under point five here. Um, what the Bible says is that when we come to faith in Christ, that we are in a very real, tangible way united to Christ. Uh, and it's not just fiction, uh, but it's an actual reality. Uh, and it's actually crucial for our understanding of the atonement and for our understanding of the resurrection uh, and eternal life and so on. Um, because if we were to simply say uh, it's sort of a money exchange kind of thing, Okay, I call, sometimes call this the mercantile view of the gospel or the barter exchange view of the gospel where it's like, you'll sometimes hear people summarize the gospel. Well, you know, uh, Jesus says, hey, I've got this deal for you. I'll give you this atonement uh, and you give me your sins. And then we exchange them and then we go on a merry way. Right? That, I think, actually is subject to the accusation of the Muslim. It's like, how can this be just? Right? How can this be fair? And the scriptures wrestle with this how can God be just and also forgive people? Because it would sound like he wasn't to just judge them if he's, if he's forgiving people. Uh, the issue is always not how could God judge in the Bible. That seems totally reasonable. The issue is always how can he forgive? <laughs> you know, how can he be a forgiving God and still be just? Uh, the idea is when we are united to Christ, then literally his death is our death uh, and his life is our life. So it's not just uh, an exchange, but it's saying that literally when Christ died, I died. That by virtue of union with him, uh, I am united to him in his death. And then also in his resurrection with his eternal life, then that eternal life is my eternal life. And so I have every expectation to live forever uh, in heaven with him. Uh, and I even now have a changed uh, heart. Um, and so we go from, the Bible talks about going from a dead heart to a living heart. Um, and all of this is worked through the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so the union is worked through the Holy Spirit. Um, and again, it's not just, oh, I just walked up to Jesus and said, how about I give you this, you give me that, great, thank you, in the marketplace, now we'll take off. But it's rather, there's a deep union between us and Christ. Uh, and because of that, now literally, it's like, you know, sometimes you could say, like in a marriage, okay, if I uh, marry somebody, legally their debts become my debts, and we're now a united, covenanted pair, and I can be held accountable for their debts, but also my accomplishments in some sense become accomplishments of the pair, you know, so that, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> you can imagine, for instance, like a, uh, a sports team, <clears throat> and they all won the championship, and um, uh, they're at the team banquet, and they're all celebrating, you know, and somebody says, oh, well, that guy there, he was a handicapped member of the team, and actually, he didn't contribute anything, so he shouldn't get a trophy. Like, everybody would say, that's terrible. How could you say that? He's a member of the team, right? Like, by union, the virtue of all belongs to all, right? In the same way, if somebody on that team goes out and commits a crime, and we see this in the news, like, the entire team is shamed. Like, they, there is a corporate, uh, because of union, what is belonging to one belongs to all. Uh, and so, in Christ, his death really is our death. Uh, and his life is our life. Uh, and so you see that formula used a lot of times in Scripture. Uh, Christ's you know, death is our death, and his life is our life. Um, and as I said, because we, in our uh, sort of default state, um, really stand opposed to God, this comes, has to come about through God working through his Holy Spirit. Okay? So um, the Spirit, you could say, is God at work in our hearts. To, so that in a very real way, spiritually, it is a spiritual reality that we are united to him and no longer separate. And some, uh, Jesus uses the picture of a vine with leaves on it. And the leaves are connected to the vine and they're sucking the juice from the, you know, from the vine, which gives them life. And a leaf disconnected is a dead leaf. Uh, that you can't be a leaf independently. You have to be connected to Christ. Um, so... Um, I'll say one more thing about union, and then I'll come back uh, and um, talk a little bit uh, about how this works. Um, the Bible always talks about that union coming about through faith. Okay, so you could say, this is why faith is crucial. Again, I'm sort of a lot of times talking against other views. There are different versions of Christianity, uh, some in the Protestant world, that would say what's going on is our faith is an impressive work that just impresses God, and he rewards us with salvation. Okay, do you see a problem with that? All right, you're shaking your head. No, that can't be right. Right? Like, um, I think that's oftentimes the way we default think, though, and uh, sort of like what Nauman was talking about in opening the service today. It's kind of like we think, well, I have to, you know, gin up all these really good feelings of faith, and when I do that, God will be impressed, and he'll reward me by drawing close. But if that was the case, like every day you'd be up and down, you'd have no idea where you stood with God, right? But it's rather, faith is crucial not because it's some good deed we do, but because it's basically saying, yes, Lord, I want to be united to you. I want to be linked to you. And it's the doorway to this union that I was talking about. That uh, you have to say, yes, Lord, come into my life. You know, be united to me. Uh, and all that follows with that, both the atonement, but also the new heart that makes me change what I do uh, and all of these other things that, that change who I am really as a person. Um, you know, uh, it's a package deal, you could say, right? You know, when you have faith in God, you say, God, I want your spirit in my life. I want you to change me. And everything that entails is a package deal. Like, I can't say, well, I just want the atonement, but I don't want any of the guilt feelings. You know, I don't want any of the conviction of sin. Like, you know, it's a package deal when you invite God into your life. Uh but as part of that, then, is the fact that uh, our sins are completely atoned for once and for all on the cross. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, understanding the concept of covenant mm -hmm. with this, all of this. I mean, that, that's the, the mutuality. Yes, I think that word covenant is a crucial one that the Bible uses. It's Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah, so... 
again, I feel like in our modern society, sometimes maybe people use, they, they don't get the depth of these words, maybe because they think they're simplifying it to make it easier for people to understand, but they actually drain it of all of its importance. So like sometimes I've heard people define a covenant as just an agreement, like a contract. But that misses completely the biblical concept of covenant, because the idea of covenant is a blood union, that there is a, a union uh, deep and fast between you. And so you know, uh, to break a covenant is to, is, is to break a, a sealed union. Um, and um, the, uh, again, that idea of just sort of an agreement sounds like, well, uh, we just have a little, uh, you know, sort of a market exchange uh, contract here. You'll do this work for me. I'll do this. I'll be fine. But like a covenant, I was saying the best picture for this is in Huckleberry Finn when Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn cut their palms and then they smash their hands together to mingle their blood together. Uh, remember that? Um, and they are basing that on what their perception is of a Native American ritual, which, for all I know, might really be true. Um, but this is their perception. But again, I think it's deep in us, this idea of like a deep covenant of union, not just a couple of people who go in their merry way. In our modern society, this is a kind of a foreign concept because we view all relationships as sort of like easily started and easily ended, and we drop them uh, fairly easily. Yeah, yes. And so in the Old Testament, we see that covenant concept again very strongly. And again, it's the idea that God is saying, you are my people, and I'm going to be with you no matter what. Uh, and so it's this deep uh, united thing. I, I also probably should mention, um, some versions of Christianity will say that in the Old Testament, people were saved by works, and in the New Testament, they were saved by faith. Uh, but the Bible is very clear that it was a you had to have a heart for God in the Old Testament and have a heart for God in the New Testament. It's really salvation by faith all the way through. Uh, and in the Old Testament, uh, the word faith, or the Hebrew equivalent of that word, is not used that much. But if you do a word search on the word heart in the Old Testament, it's all through. And God is constantly saying, you're not going to impress me with your good works. What I want is someone whose heart is truly mine. And he says that all over the place in the Old Testament. And, and that's just a different language for the same thing as saying it's about the heart faith uh, really matters uh, and not just ritual and doing uh, certain things. Um, so part of what is implied in all this that I've talked about is actually then the Trinity. Okay, so we haven't talked about, we talked about God extensively a couple weeks ago, but we didn't talk about the Trinity. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Trinity, probably be the last thing we talk about. Um, so clearly, if Jesus' atonement is to be of value to all people, he can't just be a man, okay? Because one person can atone for one person's sins, right? So first of all, we would have to say, his death had infinite value. Right? That, um, so you could say, like, you know, how is it that Jesus dying for three days atones for the sins of the whole world for thousands of years? And it's because he isn't just a guy. It's because he is God himself literally taking on the curse. And God's value is infinite. And so when God undergoes the curse, there's an infinite value uh, in, in his value, which then is sufficient for all the sins of the world. Uh, and so if Jesus is just a man, his atonement is valueless to anybody because he has to atone for his own sins, much less those of anybody else. Uh, and um, at most, he could say you could say he could atone for one person. Uh, so his, his death has to have uh, infinite value. Uh, but also then we have to say, well... Um, it has to actually be applied to everybody, right? So um, there has to actually be this union with everybody, right? Uh, and so we can you know, say infinite power uh, as applied by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I'm going to put down here then the Spirit, okay? Again, 
without the spirit, there's no union, right? Because it's a spiritual union. If God does not dwell in us, then again, Jesus is a foreigner to us and his atonement is of no value to us, right? It's only when we are actually united to him through the spirit that it, it is actually our atonement at that point and our death. And that can only come about if he can bring it about. Uh, and that means that he has to literally be able to dwell in us and be united to us. Uh, and so that is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in Scripture, uh, to dwell in us. Um, so you already see that in the Gospel, if you deny the Trinity, you've got like no Gospel at all left. Right? You really have people who are left on their own to do whatever good works they can uh, to save themselves, but you don't have the power or the value to actually atone uh, for sins. Uh, and then I'll, I'll put one last thing about the Trinity, uh, and I think this actually came up maybe um, a couple weeks ago when we started out. Um, it's just the idea of relationship. Um, uh, if you deny the Trinity, you're basically saying for all eternity, uh, before there was humans, God had nobody to talk to. You know, he was a monad, you know, that he was like a machine sitting there idling his fingers or whatever. Um, and the Christian view is that God from all eternity was was love. Okay, it says God is love, that God has love intrinsic to who he is. So if you think about it, if he didn't have a relationship with anybody until people came along, then basically you couldn't say God is love. You could say, well, God is now love, but most of the time he wasn't love until people came along and then he began to be loving. Right? Whereas you could say that if love is intrinsic to who God is, then from all eternity, uh, love was who he was, and the Father was loving the Son, loving the Holy Spirit. There was a relationship there of love and relationship. And so we'd say God is intrinsically relational or loving. And again, this, I think, actually has a huge effect on your view of God. Because if you have sort of the view of the Muslim God, if you, we talked a few weeks about it, if you have this sort of the Buddhist force view, then it's a machine, yeah. right? And that's not relational, okay? But if you have sort of the Muslim view, you have sort of like a lonely tyrant, as maybe the, you could have, like a king who lives in a room all by himself and never talks to anybody and just sends out edicts, you know? And there's no actual relationship with the king to anybody. And, you know, that's kind of like a, maybe a stereotypical view of the Muslim God. Um, but again, from the first few chapters, very beginning, God says, let us do such and such, right? Uh, and he's speaking in the plural. And there's a number of places throughout Scripture where God speaks in the plural. And one of the most interesting ones, when it's translated, it uh, says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, okay? Uh, it's actually, in the Hebrew, very interesting because it's actually switching between the plural and the singular in the nouns and the verbs as you go through. So it says, um, the Elohim, which is plural, okay, um, okay, the gods would be literally uh, the translation. The gods are one, and the one that's used there is like a unity, like Adam and Eve were one, okay? Uh, and then it goes on to say Yahweh is our God, and that's a personal name of God. And so it's a really interesting dynamic of how it's switching. But basically, from Genesis 1, you see the picture that God is not alone in a monad, that he's saying, let us do this together. Uh, and there is relationship within the intrinsic nature of who God is. Uh, and so when he creates humans, he's, he's again reflecting a reality of who he is in making people individuals and yet able to join together in union with each other. So I'm going to um, uh, stop with that, but let's uh, have some time for questions. So I'll, I'll just hint toward the future. Um, because of this union with the Spirit, there's going to be changes in us, okay? We're not left alone. And... Um, John Calvin put it this way, he says that you cannot grasp hold of part of the Trinity. You can't say, well, I want Jesus, but I don't want the Spirit. Uh, and say, well, 
I like that atonement part, but I don't like that chained heart part. Uh, you know, it's a it's a package deal because when we come to God, we come to Him as He is, uh, the whole God, uh, and when we unite ourselves to Him, uh, we're going on a roller coaster ride where you can't get off, so to speak. <laughs> uh, you're in for the deal uh, at that point. So, comments or questions? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, that's really interesting prayer, isn't it? Don't take your spirit from me. Yeah. Um, I don't think there is actually a chance that God would take his spirit away, because I, God doesn't sort of play games and be like, well, today you got the spirit, today you don't. Right. But I think it is, if you're deep in sin, that can be your deep heartfelt prayer that you feel that way, right? That you feel that God might leave you. Uh, and sort of, I think it was his his heart to say, God, I've been close to you. Don't let that stop because of my great sin. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean that God was actually threatening to do that. It's just that I think our hearts would naturally do feel that way when we when we sin against God. Right, yeah, right, because a person might just say, I'm out of here, I'm breaking off the relationship. Yeah. Has to what? God has to be the initiator. Um, yeah. And like he has, he, he always has to initiate, and he has to give his spirit to us. Mm-hmm. Or God, exact wording that he uses. Um. What about like for people who like have been raised in the church their whole life and like like have no memory about like. Basically, how do you know? Or even like people who like think they're saved, or like mm-hmm. when they grow up, Pastor Matt was talking about last week, and then like walk away. Like right. that, I I really struggle to like to see how like, the sermon last week about like people who just like turn away and like God giving His spirit to people fit together. Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. So there's uh, a lot of good questions in there. Um, so one of the things I would say is actually, um, if you really have the view of God as the initiator and the cause of things, then actually it makes it easier to understand growing up in a Christian home because you're saying there was a causal chain that led me to where I am today, much of which is beyond my control, right? And so we would say that God can use any number of means in order to bring about his ends. And so it might be that he uses you know, an incredibly good sermon. It might be he uses a Christian home. It might be that he uses a Christian friend, you know, uh, uh, or it might be that somebody has a dream, you know, like uh, there's a lot of talk about it in the Muslim world now, like dream evangelism, where people just literally have dreams and God is speaking to them saying, go find out about Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so God, is, God can do what he wants. And oftentimes, actually, the scripture says, you could say the normal means is to have a Christian family that raises uh, people up in the Lord. Um, but you're right that the Bible also goes out of its way to say just the fact that you grew up under a son of Abraham does not mean that you have a changed heart. Right. So um, in many ways, I would say, you know, the question to ask is not, can I remember some dramatic moment at which the spirit came into my life? But the question to ask is, do I, in fact, at the present, want the spirit in my life? Uh, do I want this union? Or do I feel like I hate him telling me what to do and I want to push him away? Um, because then you could say, well, uh, if I presently want that, I don't have to know the history of when I first wanted that in order to say, right now, this is what I want. 
right? Um, and I think that's true for many people raising Christian homes. It's interesting because um, my daughter would say she became a Christian like in late high school, but I remember her praying at like age six and a very heartfelt desire to, to come to faith in Christ. And I don't think we have to like decide on which was the real time. <laughs> you know, I can simply say that these are both significant events that God used in her life to carry her through uh, into uh, to real faith. Um, and um, I mean, because you could even go back and say, well, somebody who is not raised in the faith, <clears throat> who meets a group of Christian friends and is very influenced by them and they get baptized and become a Christian. Like, was that truly independent on their part? No, it was part of a causal chain that God was using, and the influence of other people is something that God uses. Um, and so when you realize that the shoe is on his shoe is on his foot, that's a bad analogy, but that God uses many, many means. Um, a separate issue, which is what about the person who appears to be a real believer uh, who isn't? And I think I'm going to uh, punt that to a future lesson because I'm going to do uh, one lesson just on repentance and faith and relationship between them. But that's a separate issue, but it's also a good one as well. Yeah, other comments or questions? Did I answer your... Well, I guess I answered half of your... You answered it. Yeah. I gave you at least some thoughts on it. Yeah. I don't So maybe you talk about the angels, you know, it says some yeah. people have, um, what's it say, hosted angels. Uh, right. Anywhere. Yeah, and so you could say there's maybe two uh, elements of that. One is you don't necessarily know when you're dealing with somebody who uh, could potentially be a believer, right? right? And maybe they're not presenting that right now, but you might be spending eternity with that person. Right. Um, but then you were also saying they might be a gift to you that you don't see as a gift at the time, but actually you're somebody sent by God to encourage you. you know. Okay, well, I'm going to stop recording. We can keep discussing, uh, but I'll pause it at this point.